Support for Need to Know comes from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. Learn more at Carnegie.org. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan, and relevant, we go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. Welcome back to another episode of the Need to Know podcast. Thank you for joining us and always listening in. Hope you will hit the subscribe button if you want to hear more from us. Bringing back an old friend, Michael Kugelman, who is our Afghanistan expert in our Asia program at the Wilson Center. Michael Kugelman, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good to be back here with you, Aaron. Well, you're a popular guy these days since the Afghanistan pullout was announced. Uh, I'm sure that everyone's been blowing up your phone to try to get your take on things. So thanks for taking the time. Really do appreciate that. Uh, it's my pleasure. Always happy to discuss Afghanistan, even though these conversations are rarely happy conversations. <laughs> well, it's it certainly, it, it is a depressing situation. Um, but then again, it has been 20 years. And so we all knew that this day was coming. Uh, we just need to figure out how the policy works um, and think through some of those things. So just help us understand when you're talking about a United States withdrawal, what does that actually mean? What are we, what are we going to see and how do, can we actually get out by this deadline of September 11th of this year? Yeah, so actually getting the troops out is the easier part uh, because it's just a matter of getting them on helicopters and ferrying them out of Afghanistan. It's the equipment, and particularly the very heavy equipment, uh, that's what takes time logistically to figure out uh, how to transport that. And the U.S. is not going to be able to remove all of the equipment. Uh, I think there are plans to uh, you know, pass on uh, some of this uh, material to the Afghan security forces, so that takes time to uh, to work out those arrangements. Obviously, the big goal for the U.S. is to make sure that none of this equipment that's leaving behind ends up in the Taliban's hands or in ISIS's hands, because that's certainly possible. So I think that a lot of time has to be put into working out the arrangements to ensure that the uh, the equipment, and particularly the large stuff that can't be removed, that it ends up with in the right places. Uh, so that's, that's indeed the challenge. And, you know, the other thing to highlight here is that, um, you know, we talk about, or we, we've heard from the administration that Everyone is leaving. Uh, everyone is withdrawing. But, you know, I think there's some interesting questions to be hashed out as to what does that actually mean? Uh, you've got a large number of contractors, uh, U.S. contractors that have been in Afghanistan. Many of them have contracts that are not expected to expire for a number f uh, for another few years. So that raises questions as to, you know, any of these folks be left behind? How will that work? You know, the Taliban expects every single U.S. security personnel to be gone. So, a lot of, a lot of uh, tricky things to still be worked out over the next few months. And as those things are being worked out, um, you know, Congress, they are the ones that, I mean, they pass the Defense Authorization Act and they fund these operations. So Congress is going to have something to say about this. You have very tight Democratic majorities in both houses. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how that plays out. But what are the things that you think Congress is going to need to be watching in the run-up to September 11th of this year? Well, I think the one uh, immediate concern for uh, for the Congress uh, should be 
to see how it can be helpful in ensuring that um, important U.S. allies in Afghanistan are assisted. Uh, when we talk about how we need to make sure that U.S. soldiers are safely brought out of Afghanistan, which is absolutely the priority. But um, you know, you have a large number of um, Afghans who have served as translators, interpreters, and have worked very closely with U.S. forces. They are in a very imperiled position. I mean, they are just by virtue of working with the U.S. military that makes them vulnerable. But with U.S. forces on their way out, that's going to make these folks even more vulnerable. And there have been some special visa programs that um, uh, these these individuals have tried to use to ensure that they can. Uh, you know, get to a safer place, which oftentimes is coming to the United States. So I think for Congress, this should be, this has to be a priority, is to try to do whatever is possible legislatively um, to ensure, to expedite any type of process to ensure these these folks that had helped the U.S. Uh, with its mission over the last almost 20 years, that they get the help they need to ensure they have the, the paperwork and the documentation um, to uh, to get to a safer place. And I would think that this this is something that should uh, be able to enjoy a fair amount of bipartisan support. I think no one would disagree that it's important to help those that have helped the United States and risked their lives in Afghanistan for so many years. So I think that should be a priority. And then, of course, after September 11th, and you, you were talking about some of the more long-term challenges of what to do with the equipment and that getting the troops out might be the easiest piece of this. But after September 11th, what do you think Congress needs to be watching out for? And uh, and I think this is probably a good time to introduce you. Know, where, where do you think things are going in Afghanistan uh, as we watch this? Yeah, so I think beyond the immediate term, post-September, once all U.S. troops have left, I think an immediate concern for Congress should be um, future um, financial support for uh, for Afghanistan. Uh, Afghanistan, of course, is, is heavily dependent on international assistance, uh, financial assistance, particularly from the United States. And especially when it comes to key institutions like the Afghan army and really all of the major uh, national security institutions in Afghanistan, heavily dependent on U.S. financial support. And you know, I, I and many other experts believe that um, the removal of U.S. troops won't necessarily be the straw that broke the camel's back and causes Afghanistan to completely collapse but I do think that if the financing is cut off altogether, that could uh, lead to fractures within the, uh, the, the army. Um, it could lead to all kinds of problematic outcomes that could lead to a very troubled security situation and could allow the, the Taliban to make major gains just because you know, the military in Afghanistan is so heavily on U.S. funding. So I think it's important for Congress to figure out how to ensure that financial assistance continues while at the same time, striking a, a middle ground here, because clearly with, with no more U.S. security presence in Afghanistan, with the U.S. troops gone, it's going to be a lot harder to manage the inflow and the management of U.S. assistance in Afghanistan. I mean, you're, there will be, there are expected to be American civilians and development workers that are still in Afghanistan, uh, whether they're working with the State Department or USAID or whatever the case may be, but they're not going to have the military support that they had. They're, they're likely, they're, there still will be a some U.S. military personnel guarding the embassy, um, so you'll have that. But it's just going to be very difficult to manage aid flows when you don't have that security umbrella. So I think that is the challenge for the Congress when contemplating future uh, legislation dealing with uh, future financial support for Afghanistan. How do you find a happy medium between continuing that necessary financial assistance and ensuring that it's not so much that you have to worry about issues with oversight and mismanagement when it's there because of these concerns about a lack of, of proper security there. 
Well, and I think also you, we're going to probably hear a lot uh, from politicians on both sides about this pullout, but there's probably going to be a lot of concern about the, the strength of the Taliban and possible return of the Taliban. What do you, what do you think about that? You know, I think that it should be concern for uh, for the Congress and really for for Americans on the whole to think about the uh, the possible consequences, of the security consequences of a total pullout, which we're going to see. And I do think that um, the the security situation will definitely get worse. The violence will definitely worse. And just because once all U.S. forces have left, it's going to put the Taliban at a major advantage. Um, for for many years, Afghan security forces have been able to depend not only on training and advising from U.S. forces to strengthen their capacities and all that, but also um, they've been able to depend on U.S. military support, including airstrikes, to uh, to help uh, Afghan security forces when they're bogged down by the Taliban. And you know, the the U.S. combat mission in Afghanistan ended almost uh, almost seven years ago. But for the la- ever since early 2015. You know, we've been there. U.S. forces have been there to help Afghan security forces when they need help. And so I think one of the most likely changes that we'll see for the worse in Afghanistan after U.S. forces have left is um, urban uh, penetrations of urban areas by the Taliban. Uh, The Taliban has largely been prevented from entering urban spaces because uh, Afghan forces fight them off when they try. And oftentimes you have U.S. airstrikes on the, on the parameters or the perimeters of cities that help repel the Taliban. But without that U.S. air support, unfortunately, the Taliban is going to have uh, face much less resistance entering cities. And obviously, once they start entering cities, they have the opportunity to seize territory, including government facilities. And that's when you have to worry about a civil war getting worse and you have to start worrying about the, the future ability of the government in Afghanistan to control uh, the country and to maintain overall uh, control. So I think that that is really the thing to uh, to watch out for the first. Obviously, the chances of all that happening are reduced if you actually have a peace process that picks up speed and the Taliban agrees to reduce violence or to even declare a ceasefire. But unfortunately, I think it could be a long time, if at all, when we see that type of thing happening because the Taliban has the upper hand and knows that the uh, it's going to have an opportunity to finish off a fight that it has long believed it's winning, and that is to defeat the Afghan military and seize power by force. Well, there's I've heard a lot of people talk about the comparing this as possibly being like the North Vietnamese invasion of South Vietnam in 1975. Is that a is that a valid comparison of what we might see? I think that the, the comparison is understandable talking about now over the next few months, the, the fact that you have U.S. forces withdrawing uh, likely under fire with the risk of being hit as they go, which is which is clearly not a good thing. That's not what the U.S. wants. But certainly there's a tendency to think back of, you know, the helicopter taking off from the embassy uh, roof there in Saigon in 1975. I don't know if it would be, I don't think it would get to that level um, just because I think that the Taliban... It, um, it's less likely to hit the Americans hard as they're leaving just because they know the Taliban knows that there is a clear uh, departure date. It's not the May 1st deadline the Taliban was hoping for, but it will be by September, which is just a few months away. That doesn't mean that the U.S. is not going to come under fire. In fact, there already have been one or two incidents since May 1st, but nothing major. But indeed, certainly I think the Vietnam comparison that's made more broadly is that it's just a matter of time. Once U.S. forces leave, you know, the insurgents will come in and, and take over. Um, and I don't know if I would go that far just because, yes, uh, Afghan forces are beleaguered. The government's going to be in a lot of trouble. 
But, uh, I mean, you do have entities in Afghanistan. I mean, the military, say what you will about the Afghan military, but it is, it's kinetic. It's, it's ability to, to, uh, to fight kinetically, kinetic uh, activities. Those capacities have strengthened in a big way. So they are able to engage the Taliban and, and go after them. That's, that's not an issue. It's more so maintaining momentum and pushing back against the Taliban when they come back. That's, that's a problem. Uh, you also have a number of non-state entities that are opposed to the Taliban, including one called the Northern Alliance, which is basically a group of, 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 of figures that previously had fought the Taliban uh, years ago, but they've never, uh, they've never been eliminated. They're still there. And that includes uh, some members of some pretty significant political parties. So what I'm saying is that I don't think all would be lost, so to speak. And I think that, especially if the financial assistance continues to flow in, I don't think that the Taliban would completely take over. Uh, and if it were to happen, it would need to it would need to happen over time, where you'd have uh, Afghan security forces basically unable to hold on to cities and that type of thing. But the key things to look for: one, financial support. Do does the state continue to get a modicum of financial support that will help fend off the Taliban? And also the morale of the Afghan security forces. If you start to see more and more soldiers essentially deserting their, their barracks and moving over to the Taliban side, this has happened on small levels to this point. If that starts to happen more, I think that's when you, that's when you really have to worry about the Taliban sort of being in a position to just go full on and, and, and finish the job. But I'm not saying that that would be immediate. So that's why I don't think we should overstate the Vietnam comparison. And uh, I do want to touch on the human rights issue because there's a lot of people that, that have made this, well, all these gains that have been made in human rights and in, you know, girls getting education and women's rights and uh, it could, could all be erased by the United States leaving. Now, I've also heard the other side say, look, that was not the original mission for us going to Afghanistan, there was a counterterrorism mission, uh, and the human rights came along with that. But uh, what 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 do we have to look forward to and watch out for in the human rights space? You mentioned the special visa uh, recommendation for people who've helped us out, but certainly there'll be a human rights challenge there too. So is that something we should be looking for in, in as far as the refugees and asylum? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's uh, the answer is more complex than it may seem. Uh, absolutely, I think that uh, threats to women's rights and human rights will be uh, a very likely casualty of the U.S. pullout, just because the Taliban will be emboldened and uh, it'll be able to take over more territory in rural areas and impose its system, uh, which really, based on what we know of the areas that it controls now, oftentimes imposes strong limits on the ability of girls uh, to go to school, especially beyond uh, once they, they reach puberty, beyond that stage, they've been uh, held back from, from going to school. Um, and the, the, the public role of women has been, has been constricted in some of these areas of the Taliban control. So absolutely, you know, these gains that have been made over the last 20 years, those could well be squandered. But indeed, the UFO, on a formal official level, the U.S. goal in Afghanistan in this war was never to focus on human rights and democracy promotion. It was always a counterterrorism focus to eliminate the Al-Qaeda uh, sanctuaries. Now, certainly, uh, you know, after that initial goal of removing the Al-Qaeda sanctuaries was achieved, you had this extended period of mission creep where you never really had a clear articulation of why we were still in Afghanistan. And I know that that's been a concern on, on Capitol Hill for quite some time, as it should be. 
And I think that, uh, you know, you, you certainly had some cases of officials trying to suggest why we were there, trying to bring more stability, trying to help strengthen national institutions and all that. But it was never really any formal articulation. And, you know, President Trump, um, to his credit, when he announced his Afghanistan strategy, he cast it as, as a counterterrorism uh, strategy. Clearly, President Biden, you know, his main justification for leaving Afghanistan was because, in his view, the counterterrorism, pardon me, the terrorism threat is not as significant to the U.S. as it had been. So it all comes down to counterterrorism. But since there had been this long period where you didn't have U.S. officials regularly and formally declaring why the U.S. was there, that sort of allowed a lot of speculation and also conspiracy theories to seep in, uh, such as, you know, many in Pakistan and Russia argue that the U.S. is just there to... Uh, you know, to try to uh, to to secure uh, to, to be in a position to seize nuclear weapons in Pakistan, or to keep China away, or something like that, or to take control of the drug trade in Afghanistan. Obviously, this is none of this is true, but I think that's a casualty there. But getting back to your to your point, it's important to note that um, yes, there have been many gains with women's rights and humans human rights in Afghanistan in recent years, but. Um, those gains have only accrued in urban areas and have only been appreciated and sought by what I would describe as more liberal, progressive Afghans. In rural areas, you know, even areas under government rule, in many cases, women's rights are, are, not, uh, are not respected. Women are treated poorly. And unfortunately, because of norms in a lot of these more conservative areas, you don't have this demand for more women's rights and things like that. So. You know, I think that we could argue that the departure of U.S. forces will allow the Taliban to be emboldened and it could cause these gains to be rolled back. But in many parts of Afghanistan, those gains were never achieved and they've also not been sought either. So, hmm. Well, that's interesting. So it's an uphill battle either way, it sounds like. We're going to take a quick break here uh, and we're going to come back and ask Michael Kugelman a few questions about the situation in India and coronavirus surging there. So we'll be right back. If you're enjoying this episode, it's time to get Wilson smart with the rest of the Wilson Center's podcast offerings. Head on over to wilsoncenter.org slash podcasts to see what we have to offer. And we're back with Michael Kugelman. Um... I just want to to touch on India since while we have you here, I, I can't let an India expert go to waste. Coronavirus situation there surging, um, and it seems like it's having some some challenges for the government there. So, just fill us in real quick on on what's going on there. It's such a an odd feeling. Suddenly, in the United States, we feel like we see the end of the the light at the end of the tunnel, where and at the same time we see cases surging in other places in the world. Yeah, I think the big the biggest lesson out of this tragedy unfolding in India in recent weeks is that we cannot afford to be complacent about this pandemic, right? I mean, indeed, here in the U.S., we think we're turning the corner, and we are for now, but we shouldn't be complacent. In India, uh, you know, the Indian government thought just really a few months ago that it, it had turned the corner just because the numbers had gone down uh, in terms of new cases and uh, deaths and so on. Um, and yet there, the government knew that a new, very highly confectious infectious variants of the coronavirus uh, had been detected a number of months ago. 
And yet it did not make any effort. The government in India did not make any effort to try to um, take steps to reduce the risk posed by that infectious variant. So for instance, it did not take steps to ban large crowded events. And there were quite a, there were quite a few of them in India in recent months, given that you had a perfect storm of, of uh, political rallies. There are a number of state election campaigns playing out in India in recent months, along with some very largely attended uh, religious festivals, including a major one for Hindu pilgrims along the banks of the Ganges River. So you had thousands of people, actually millions of people, uh, that over the last few months were attending these big events without wearing masks. The government did not try to, to, uh, to, to ban them. And so as a result, things got really bad, that that variant, um, it, it infected so many people. And then given how overburdened the health system is enough in India under ordinary circumstances, it simply could not handle this incredible shock to the system, so to speak. And that's led to where we are today with these oxygen crises. I mean, it's amazing that, you know, cities of more than 20 million in India, including the political and financial capitals, New Delhi and Mumbai, where their hospitals don't have oxygen. Uh, in many cases, the oxygen has been replenished, but it keeps running out. And I think what's particularly troubling is that even though uh, a number of countries, including the U.S., of course, have provided international, have provided relief, have sent supplies, emergency supplies to India. Um, uh, more than a dozen countries have sent uh, supplies and more is on the way. There's been extensive delays in getting that emergency assistance to hospitals and elsewhere in India once they arrive, just because of bureaucracy, quite frankly, in India. So, you know, unfortunately, the, the country's in a situation where the, the system, the public health system is about to collapse. The government has not been able to ensure that people need the supplies they get. And even these supplies coming in from overseas have been slow to get to the people that need them. So it's just a it's just a, a tragedy on a mass scale. And what's the vaccine situation in India? So India is, under ordinary circumstances, is, is the largest um, producer of vaccines globally. It produces about 50 to 60 percent of global vaccines. And earlier this year, back in January, when things were looking good for India, it actually rolled out the world's first uh, na national vaccine campaign. It had so many vaccines that it started exporting millions of them overseas as part of this vaccine diplomacy effort, which was in part meant to push back against China's own vaccine uh, effort. But then the cases got bad in India, um, and then it had to pull back on these exports. And now it's in a tough spot where it's, it now has shortages of vaccines. It, it had sent millions of them away um, earlier this year. And now with the, the, the virus getting so much worse, it, it, there's a huge urgency to get vaccines to people. And yet you've got a number of countries overseas, particularly uh, developing countries, including those in Africa, that have orders, pending orders, that are expecting second doses of vaccines that have been promised to them by India earlier this year. So India's government's in a tough spot. They have to uh, account for the needs of their own population, but there's also millions of people overseas that have been dependent depending on vaccines because they didn't have any other where to go. They couldn't produce them at home. And so this is, I think, an indication of how, you know, this crisis in India is a crisis for India, but it's also a crisis for the world. It seems like a logistical and a supply chain and a public health crisis also seems like a political crisis for the Modi government. How is the, how has the government been handling this and what are, what are prospects for, for how things are going there? Yeah, well, this is certainly the biggest political crisis that uh, that the Modi government has faced in its nearly seven years uh, in power, for sure, bar none. There have been some other challenges, but this is easily the biggest one. Uh, and what's striking is that uh, even uh, supporters, core supporters of Modi and his ruling party, 
have been issuing withering criticism. And you know, one can understand why. I mean, you've got so many people that feel that their government did not respond uh, quickly enough and was, and was complacent. Now, you know, the question about what implications does this have? Well, there's not, there've been a number of state elections uh, playing out in India the last few weeks, and there will be some more over the next year or two, but it's a few more years until there's another parliamentary election in India. And Modi is someone who, he's got a very strong support base. Um, he's got a, a very strong, uh, uh, large critical mass of, of supporters. The, um, the ruling party, the BJP, has a very strong, um, uh, how should I put this, public relations system, so to speak, that uh, is all about image enhancement and ensures that, you know, Modi is will never be blamed for things that happen. It's always someone else's fault. There's that. And also the opposition in India, the political opposition is very weak. Um, it's, it's performed horrifically in the last few parliamentary elections, the Congress party I'm talking about here in particular. Um, uh, so I think that... Um, it's a few years, you've got a few years for Modi to recover. And uh, I think ultimately it depends how long this crisis rages on. If things come under control in the next few weeks, the next few months, that'll be helpful politically for him. But I think that, I mean, if it rages on for a longer amount of time, that could be more damaging. But bottom line is I think that as much as he's vulnerable now, uh, I think that uh, his prospects, I think, are quite, are quite strong. Uh, if you look the next year or two, He'll have time to recover. And uh, I think that he stands a pretty good chance of being elected to a third term. I don't want to get ahead of myself. But the bottom line is I don't think we should overstate the political damage that could accrue to him, even though right now in the immediate term, he's getting hit really hard. Very interesting. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Michael. Always thankful for the expertise you bring us on South Asia. So thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Always a pleasure.